That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. So then when we're doing the ship attack, we're underneath the ship. As I'm waiting for the signal to surface to the top, my O2 rig failed and I couldn't breathe anymore. And I tried so hard to breathe and there was nothing. And um, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to blow this mission. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. The United States Navy's sea, air, and land teams, commonly known as the Navy SEALs, are an elite group trained to work in all environments. SEAL training is rigorous. Prospective candidates must pass a number of mental and physical requirements, and those who succeed will have trained for over two years before their first deployment. The SEALs are the U.S. Navy's best, and the best of the SEALs is SEAL Team 6. SEAL Team 6 has worked in countless operations, including the assassination of Osama bin Laden. Only the best and bravest survive the grueling selection process that leads to SEAL Team 6. They're the greatest warriors on Earth, and today's guest is one of them. In Don Mann's action-packed life, he's worked in highly classified missions all over the world. He was even captured by the enemy and lived to tell the tale. In Carla's fascinating talk with Don, we hear about just how demanding the SEAL training is, situations where he stared death straight in the eye, and how his experience has affected his political and world views. I found him hard to interview. It was hard for me to really get to who he is outside of being a Navy SEAL. I, I couldn't penetrate that. I really couldn't. He's definitely got a tougher exterior and he only lets you see so much of him. Every day, your mind can get stronger. Every single day, your mind can get stronger. And you can't do that with your body. At some point, you get super fit and strong and fast and all that. But at some point, you know, I've had NFL and NBA players crying. I've had SEALs crying. I can hurt anybody I want to by punishing through exercise. So at some point, your body's going to give in. Everybody, no matter who the person is. At some point, they're going to give in. The bodies were given, but your mind can get stronger and stronger every day. And even if you're stuck in the bed and you have two broken legs and you're sitting there with a back injury or whatever, you can lay there and you can get your mind stronger. So, and it never needs a break either, like your body does. And so what, what happened to me is my mind got a lot stronger than my body did. And I pushed myself way beyond what my body could take. So quite a bit of times I, I, I hurt my body just because I shut down my liver at times, my kidneys, did all these injuries in my body just because my mind was so powerful. It was saying, hey, who cares? Keep going, keep going, keep going. How do you remove the emotion and the anxiety to be so strong? Would you say that part of you has, um, I don't want to say like something negative, but a, an ability to shut well, down? it doesn't shut down. My, my mind doesn't. Actually, I like music a lot. There's certain songs that I have kind of programmed in my brain that play over and over. And I don't listen to headphones, but they just kind of, because I've heard them so many times, I think of music. 
And um, so music helps me out a lot. But when I have pain, whatever the pain is, I'm positive I can go through it. And when the pain is too much, I know I'll simply pass out. So have you never, with all your your crazy, dangerous missions, which we'll talk about, ever experienced, you know, about a depression, anxiety, something that you just can't get out of bed or you can't seem to push through? No, I have to go to bed with a plan for the next day. I have to know what I'm going to do for my workout for the next day. And when I wake up, I'm excited to do it and get on with the day. Where is there space for a wife or a partner, life partner? Well, that's something I kind of struggle with. You know, it hasn't worked for me. And um, I feel like I'm very loving and tender and everything like that. But I think it's hurt me, too, because how do I say this without sounding terrible? But like, for instance, if my wife or if I'm with my girlfriend or if I'm not married and she said, oh, no, I have a headache today. It's hard for me to take that like, well, that's a terrible thing. It's hard for me to say, well doesn't really matter if you have a headache let's just get on with the day so maybe i think well i shouldn't say maybe i pretty much had that attitude and have that attitude and i'm sure that hasn't helped relationships at all i have sympathy of course for people especially as a medic and as a combat medic and i took care of people when they were wounded but when it comes to people when they find excuses why not to do things it kind of just rolled off my shoulders i didn't pay that much attention to it so what gets you down? Like something must, there must be something that makes you, I don't know, feel some stress or, or something. <laughs> well, I do wish I was able to, you know, I wish I was in one long, prolonged marriage and happily married. I, I wish that, and I'm not happy about that. Something gets me down if, uh, like, for instance, when I got to Everest, I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs. And I didn't know if I was going to live or die. And I couldn't walk out to my mailbox because I just choked and coughed. It didn't really get me down, but I was thinking, all my life, the last 40 years, this is all I've done. What am I going to do now? But you always have to have a backup plan. And I was thinking I have to <laughs> think of some exercise where I can do where I don't run out of breath, maybe just a bunch of ab workout or something. I just like exercise. I don't care what it makes you look like because the exercise I've always done doesn't make you look you know phenomenal or anything it really makes I remember one lady we're all playing frisbee and she said to me once when I was doing you know 30 hour week workouts and she goes Don if you just exercise you'd probably look pretty good and I think oh my god if you knew how much I exercise but um I, I just am addicted to exercise the adrenaline and not because of uh something about the way it makes you look or anything. I know it's good for you all. I don't even do it because it's good for you. I, I'm glad it's good for you, and I'm glad it makes you look better. I just enjoy it so much. And I enjoy the outdoors. I never, I never do a treadmill or anything like that in a gym. I just love I, I see a mountain, I want to run to the top of it. And I see a desert, I want to run to the next sand hill. Or I, go, I see a jungle, I want to sleep in the jungle. Are you scared of death? Do you fear dying? Actually, I have a uh, a view of it that's, I think, a little bit unique when I mention it to other people. What I would like to do when I die, and it really doesn't matter when, you know, when it happens, it happens. I just don't want to leave my daughter without a father. But um, when I die, I would rather it be, because I saw my parents go through long, slow, cancerous deaths. 
What I would prefer, if I had my choice, would be diving in one shark attack or a lion attack or a bear attack or an avalanche or buried on Everest. Uh, something where there's an adrenaline rush. There's one last adrenaline rush and you're right back to the food chain, you're doing what you like, and there's no long, slow suffering death. That would be my preference. And, and I really have thought that for many, many years. Um, sometimes I'm afraid to say it to people because they think it sounds pretty extreme, but I'd much prefer that over a long, slow sickness in a hospital and having nurses and uh, medics having to take care of you till you die in day. Uh, you know what? After reading about you and talking to you, I don't think that sounds crazy at all. <laughs> I, think that oh, it, <laughs> I think that that is probably a really good perspective to have. And it probably it probably allows you to keep pushing yourself because each time you say, if I'm doing what I want to be doing, if it happens, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if it's been going on now for all my life, which is 60 years now, I'm not going to change my way of thinking. And, um, and I, when I compare myself to other people, I, I haven't done anything compared to so many other people, you know, as far as sports or military or anything. I'm just very, very fortunate. I'm in one piece. A lot of my friends have, died off or been killed. I don't know why I'm so lucky. I, I haven't really done anything to be this lucky, but um, I'm just going to keep going. Well, you probably are really good at taking your calculated risks, um, <laughs> right? And <laughs> you probably lucky, right? have some good luck with you, something you've been, um, you've been spared to do something, something greater, I suppose. So let's talk about some of your, your missions and, which mission do you think you were pushed further than you ever thought you could go? We did a, um, a hostage rescue off a ship one day. And years before, in training, I passed out in the pool during training, and the instructors pulled me up, and I passed that evolution. And and it was, you know, we lost a lot of people. And, and um, there was a breath-holding thing. You had to do a forward flip in the pool, swim underwater to the other side, do a flip turn and kick, kick and, and come back. And a lot of people are passing out. And the instructor said, anybody can do this. If you don't pass this, we don't want you wasting our time. We're going to kick you out of here. And um, you need to do this to go on to the next step in this BUDS training, the SEAL team training. If you can't do this, it just means you're weak. It means you felt bad for yourself and you had to jump to the surface and get a breath and you're just weak and we want nothing to do with you. And I'm cleaning up the language. They didn't use such nice language. And then just before that, they tie your hands and feet and they throw you in and you have to bob and try to get to the surface, get your lips above the water just to get a breath. And you have to do that until what they say, until they get tired. And uh, so we're going up and down and up and down and up and down. And one guy did drown and they resuscitated him and um, they kicked him out for trying to cheat. So then when we're doing the forward flip in the air, jump in the pool, swim to the other end underwater and flip turn and come back, I felt like there was an ice pick in my head. And the ice pick felt like it was getting harder and harder and sharper and sharper and more and more painful in my head. And I didn't think I could make it back. And, and mind you, for four years prior to that, all I did was train to be a SEAL. I had one goal when I was that age, to be a SEAL. Nothing was going to stop me. And I was fit and I was training. I did over a thousand races, competitions to be fast and fit and strong. And I was so, so ready. But when this pool evolution came up, I did that. And that's something I didn't train for. 
And I did my forward flip, went under, came back. And when I was coming back, I was thinking, oh, my God, I can't take this pain anymore. It's killing me. My head's killing me. And I shot to the surface and I quit. They said, get over there, loser. And they said it. I think we had 108 people left and eight or so people passed that day. And uh, so I quit. And I, my life felt like it was over because that's all I wanted in life was to be a SEAL. And then finally, the instructor said to the guys who passed, they said, we won't give these guys another chance. Let's give them another chance. So the guys who did pass said, yeah, let's give them another chance. And then I was thinking, there's no way in this world I am ever going to quit anything again in my life. I mean, my life just flashed before my eyes. I, everything was gone. And I did my forward flip, went underwater, and coming back, the ice pick was there again. It was hurting my head so badly. But when I finished, when I came back to the other side of the pool, um, I had blacked out and then passed out. And when they pulled me up out of the water, I was frothing at the mouth, but they said, good job, you passed. And they told us that. They said, if you guys pass out underwater, we'll resuscitate you. You'll be okay. And all I had to do was believe them. I just needed someone tougher than me to make me do what they wanted me to do. And I got the concept on that day. So then when we were doing the ship attack, we're underneath the ship and you take all your gear off. You have this, it's a four hour dive. It's a night dive. Everything we did was nighttime at SEAL Team 6. And you breathe 100% pure oxygen. And it's deadly after four hours. And you can go into convulsions and then die if you're on oxygen, 100% oxygen for over four hours. And so our dive was not going very well at all. We're having all these issues. And you're, you're diving seven or eight people all together in the pitch black. And everyone has to stay together the same depth and make the turns at the same time. And it's stressful. And, uh, and then you have to find the right ship because you can't attack the wrong ship. And then you find the right ship and you attach a line underneath the ship. And then on that line, you take off your fins and your weight belt and you take off all your operational gear that you don't need for the ship attack, all your diving operational gear you put on that line. So that was happening. And now I'm looking at my watch. Plus, I'm the medic. I'm worried about the time. I'm afraid people are going to start convulsing. So it's like four and a half hours now. We're over the time limit. And anything bad can happen at any time. And as I'm waiting for the signal to surface to the top, my O2 rig failed, and I couldn't breathe anymore. And I tried so hard to breathe, and there was nothing. And we had one rule of engagement that was not to get caught. Don't get compromised. I did my SOP, Standard Operating Procedures. I did them three times. I checked my inhalation valve, my exhalation, the hoses with the valves inside. I turned my oxygen on, made sure it was on, and my mouthpiece was on. I did those three checks three times. And now I'm starting to feel what my head was feeling like in the pool that time. And um, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna blow this mission. I can't surface, I'll give away the whole mission. And then I shook my buddy's fin who was above me and he came down to see me, but he couldn't see because it's pitch black. I couldn't see him, he couldn't see me, but I felt his mouth with my hand. Notice he didn't have a mouthpiece in. And I was thinking, okay, I got to surface. I don't want to ruin this. And if a ship, you know, I know we can't see each other, but if a ship right now, if I was holding up my hands, would have them spread out about three feet long. If a ship is that long as a diver, you're about a half an inch under that. I mean, you're minuscule. These ships are huge. And um, so I just started surfacing. I was thinking, I need a breath. I need a breath so hard, so bad. I need to breathe. I want to breathe. I can't wait to breathe. 
my head was killing me, just like in the pool. And I was coming up, I was coming up, it's pitch black. And I was walking hand over hand to the bottom of the ship to the side of the ship. I was saying, I can't wait to breathe, I can't wait to breathe. And then the side of the ship was obstructed with this large obstacle and I couldn't surface. And then I was thinking, I'm dead. Nobody knows I'm here. I need a breath so badly. And I start, all I knew to do was to kick and kick. And so I kept kicking. I didn't know which direction I was going. My head was killing me. And I was thinking, you know, if I just took one deep breath, the pain would be over. I'd just die. I'd drop to the bottom. And who knows if they'd ever find my body. I don't know. But the pain would be over. And I hated that I had those thoughts that a quitter would have. But of course, I didn't do that. And I just kept kicking and kicking and kicking. This went on for minutes. And minutes to not have any breath was a long time. And so I just kept going and kicking and kicking and kicking. And before you knew it, I ended up at the front of the ship, at the bow of the ship. And I took my mask down by my neck so I'm not giving away my position with the lights. I swam on the port side of the ship, said a prayer, and um, my buddies were all climbing the side of the ship. We went up, got the hostage, mission success. And during the debrief, they said, anybody have any issues? I said, yeah, I had a couple. And what happened, it was just a faulty valve in my in my hose. But it was a good, good lesson. And there was a very uh, lesson where I came close to dying. But the lesson I had in, in Bud's training was never, ever, ever quit. And it, it, it worked. So I think that's the one I like the best. You are just insanely disciplined and focused. <laughs> That's one way to say it, I guess. <laughs> oh, thanks. All I kept thinking was, okay, I would just have like been dead. So this hostage, how do you go in and get them and extract them? And is this hostage a government employee? Like, who is this hostage? Well, there's a lot of things I can't include in the story, but they're usually civilians, um, civilian hostages, Americans, and they're taken by the bad guy and, um, and sealed the call, the ranges, the special forces, the Delta Force. But if it's a ship, it's usually sealed, and oftentimes sealed from six, and they have to go, and because seal is sea, air, and land. So anything to do with the sea, it's, uh, you know, we don't call the Army or the Marines. The Marines have some capability. The Army really doesn't have that much when it comes to the water, unless it's like Panama or Central America with the rivers. But the seals are the ones to call if you have somebody on the water who, who has to be rescued. Do you put them back in the water with you? Like, how do you get them to a safe location? Well, once you secure the ship and you've secured the ship and the bad guys are neutralized, we'll say, and there's no more threat on the ship, then you call in a helo. And the helo can either come down on the deck of the ship if it's large enough, or they can lower a hoist and you can lift them up into the helo with a hoist, kind of like they do with the rescues and other things. You've taken out the whole ship right now. Just the terrorist, just the terrorist, because the terrorists have taken, there might be a hundred people on a ship, and if it's Somali, and there might be six Somali pirates who take them. Right now, I'm, I'm doing Captain Phillips, steering in my head, I'm thinking the Somali pirates. Okay, so would they have taken over an American ship, the Somalis? Oh, yes, absolutely. The Somalis, they, they've got a money-making machine with their, with their piracy operation. They can take four or five, excuse my language, just nobodies, nine, 18, 17-year-old kids with weapons 
take a rubber boat onto a ship, and because of our rules of engagement where you can't shoot somebody because they're not a threat, you have to, they, they board the ship, and then they take it over because they don't have any rules they follow. We have all these rules. What about if the ship owner hires a private security company? Do they have the same rules of engagement? Yes, they do. Only if it's a threat. Well, if they're coming on board the ship, wouldn't that, would that be enough of a threat for them to open fire on them? So sometimes the rules of engagement are if they have a shoulder-fired weapon on them, like a lot of rocket or an AT-4 or something, a shoulder-fired weapon, sometimes the rules of engagement, you can shoot them. Other times, if they don't have a shoulder-fired weapon, but they have a, like a long gun, like an AK-47, and they're pointing it at you, then you can shoot. But if they come up and they don't appear to be a threat, for instance, they don't have either of those, then they have to be dealt with aggressively, but they can't be shot. You can take them hostage. But for some reason, they've been making millions of dollars because they know our weaknesses and they'll come on and they know we're not going to shoot them unless they are the threat. And if they come up in the middle of night and board the ship and we don't catch it and they have a bunch of ship deck people without weapons seeing it, They've been doing really, really well with their, with their business model. Are you comfortable talking about your politics, or is that something you stay away from? No, sure, I'll talk about it. Are you a, a Republican, a Democrat? Well, I'm a pretty conservative person, and I'm conservative not to the point where I think that a lot of the liberal policies are all wrong, I'm conservative in the point that I can't believe where the conversations today are going. I can't believe we sit around a table now and talk about, should we have Sharia law? Should that be allowed in our country? I can't believe people are discussing that right now. I can't believe the conversations that are taking place anymore. So I'm conservative to the point of not being a strict, strict conservative where I think the values of 100 years ago are the same values we should hold. But I do believe a lot of conservative values that we're losing are going to destroy our nation. And, and I do believe our liberal policies, it's almost like a cancer destroying the fabric of our country, the social fabric of our country, our society. And really, any great nation that collapses is usually from within. And it's usually not unlike what's happening with our liberal policies heating up the fabric of our country right now. I mean, right now, we are so far apart and so divided. Our country in the U.S. here, it is so divided. I know up in Canada, I know because I have a very, very close friend up there. The news you get up there is not factual all the time. I know you get a lot of left, left, left-leaning news. We get that too. But we also get a touch of conservative news and they differ so much, and it's, it's appalling. It's so upsetting to me that the world and our countries aren't hearing the truth. Let's break that down, because I'm curious to know more about this. You know, I have also worked in a lot of different countries and cultures, so sometimes I, I feel like I also have a different perspective based on other things that people might not understand. For instance, in Central Eastern Europe, it's just how it's very corrupt, and that's how the countries run. And how they approach business is very different from how the West would approach business. 
And my husband lived and worked in Saudi Arabia, billing the first cellular network. And he saw a different side to the world as it comes to the world theater, as you'd call it. Okay. So if we break that down, you have seen the worst of countries. So based on that, and, and based on you being in, in the middle of chaos, do you think that the whole Muslim ban makes sense to you? Do you understand where that comes from, from a Republican standpoint? I understand, I think, pretty good, really good understanding, I believe, of both. And, and, um, and from the extreme right side, the point of view that I have is because I actually worked with the worst Muslim terrorist in the world, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Abu Zubaydah, the ones, and, and hearing from their lips exactly their point of views. For instance, this would be one of them. And this is coming from them, not being made up. This is coming from them. KSM. said, KSM. So how were you able to cut off Daniel Pearl's head? I mean, and then he got a glimmer to his eye and he, he smiled. He said, oh, it wasn't hard. I cut through his neck. And once the blood stopped spurting, he stopped yelling and screaming as much. But when I got through his voice box, he stopped completely. The only hard part was cutting through his neck. And he was smiling when he said that. And then the next question was, well, don't you feel bad about killing our women and children when you do these bombings? Oh, no, no, no. Because your women and children support the men who fight. Your infidels are supported by those women and children. And they're the ones going against the Muslim. It is our duty to take out an infidel whenever and wherever we see them. And we're going to do that in a lot of ways. We do it by the sword, meaning decapitation or kill or bomb. Or we'll do it financially. We'll do a terrorist attack. We'll do a shoe bomb. We'll do the anthrax attack. And you'll spend billions of dollars trying to correct your systems. And we're doing it educationally. We're doing our Saudi Arabia uh, Islamic studies programs throughout your colleges. And of course, we don't say anything about terrorist attacks. We call them incidents in response to American aggression. And those, those policies have all been approved. So we're going to do it through the education system, financial system, and we're going to do it through overpopulation. We're going to have our, ch our childbearing mothers have seven to eight children per mother, years down to one to two to three, depending on the Western country you're from. And we're going to overpopulate this world. And this is a Muslim world, and it's ours, and we're going to take it over. They tell us that. And, okay, so what could stop the terrorists? Like, what could the world do that could, I don't know, mm -hmm. mitigate them? Well, I, I, mean, what I don't think it's war. I don't, and this is my, my other side. I really try to look at it open-mindedly. I don't think war is the answer because they could care less how many of them are killed. And of course, we have all the planes, we have all the bombs and everything. We could bomb those cities to pieces, and we're killing a lot of innocent people. Their women and children are just like our women and children, and they hide out in those schools and villages, and that's just the way they are. We're not doing a thing over there. We've been at war for 16 years. I, I think we've done very, very, very little over there, except for probably a lot of damage. So I don't, as a conservative... Most conservatives are going to hear this and they'll say, what the heck's he talking about? He's a seal. Why is he talking like that? I don't think war is the answer either. To tell you the truth, I don't think we know the answer. 
my doctors, who the two doctors, the two psychologists I worked with, who ran the interrogations on the worst terrorists in the world, once said to me, they said, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there can be coexistence. They cannot coexist with us because they find us weak. They find us giving women rights. They find us letting children and women and girls go to school. They find us uh, being weak by negotiating. We cannot live with Sharia law. Well, now people can't. We, we don't believe in beheading and stoning a woman because she cheated on a husband. That will, We don't have compatibility in these areas. We can negotiate with them. They see that as a weakness. So, I'm, But I'm talking about the extreme Islamic the extreme viewpoint. What so, percentage, when you're over in those countries, did you ever feel welcome? Did you ever feel that the countries and cultures could coexist? Superficially, I did. Because they would love taking our money. They would love the gifts we gave them. We just, you know, we invaded their countries and their viewpoint. And we built schools and we built roads and we gave them a lot of money and we gave them candy and we gave them food and things like that. But still, they're gladly accepted with a smile. But then we leave and we're the Americans who killed their cousins, perhaps, right? So it was superficial. I, I think they know enough to take what we can give them because they don't have anything. But they would still, I've never felt welcome. Somalia, Yemen, I've never been felt more hated in all my life. They look at you like they just want to kill you. I agree. I would say even when I, I lived in China when, you know, gosh, when I was 24, so that's, you know, almost 24 years ago, I just felt like they just looked at me like you are a stupid Canadian slash American and we don't really need you. We're here so we can extract what we need and then we're going to get rid of you, of which they did. You know, they actually forced all of the telco companies out of China and we all left after trying to make it work because they really have the long game. They think they think really long in advance. And we think short term and they don't they don't forget. Yes. And so when my husband uh, lived and worked in in Saudi and and he said during all this, he's like, you know, people that have never lived there have no idea how deep it goes. Like this is all this war is not going to make a difference. There's just such deep seated hate. But it's so sad to say because there seems to be no solution. I know, I know. You know, right now if you go to Detroit and places like that, and there was just a special on uh sixty minutes perhaps a couple months ago, and they were walking around talking to the children and, and uh high school students and college students. And they were in a Somali neighborhood where the police weren't allowed anymore. So our law enforcement wasn't allowed in these neighborhoods, in the U.S., granted. And they would say, hey, what do you know about U.S. law, constitutional law, from kids to high school to college? Same answer. Oh, no, no, nothing, nothing. We don't know anything about that. What do you know about Sharia law? Oh, Sharia law, God's law. Yeah, that's, we learn about that every day in school. That's coming. This is what we practice. Sharia law is God's law. And now they get a certain percentage of population and and then you have to vote in a certain amount of people like-minded to, to make the policies and, uh, you know, and the rules and the, and the laws in that area. And it, it's coming. And it's in the liberal, our liberal policies allow it. Conservatives are trying to stop it. And I'm for stopping that. 
And I'm for stopping it for the good of our people, not for the good of their people, the good of our the people who live here already. Why wouldn't the Republicans just focus on those issues, you know, like uh, country safety issues? And why do they care about transgender or people of different, you know, ethnic backgrounds? It just seems like everything gets piled on. And so, you know, it just seems like such a negative. Yeah. And, and the news makes it worse than it is, I believe. So the transgender thing, I mean, I don't know anybody who could care less about that. But if you try to put that in special operation forces or in SEAL team, you're going to ruin a SEAL team for the sake of one person coming in. It doesn't work. It will never work. Can you imagine a woman, yourself or any woman you've ever met in your life, being shot up on a battle zone? And then your buddy, who's 220 pounds with 100 pounds of gear on him, gets shot and you have to carry him off to a safe area. It won't happen. It doesn't happen. There's so many things men do that women can't. So it's more of a physical a physical thing. Is there, has there ever been a female Navy SEAL? They just had one going through the training and she made it through a couple of weeks and then it passed. The case Don is referring to was reported in August 2017. The first woman to begin the process for elite Navy SEAL training withdrew from the applicants pool by dropping out of a summer course for officers who want to be selected for the SEALs. It's no easy task. That three-week program tests physical and psychological strength, water competency, and leadership skills. Sailors must complete this to move on to SEAL basic training. And that basic training is so difficult, 75% of all candidates drop out by the end of the first month. Also, a 2015 study comparing how men and women perform in combat found that female service members were injured twice as often as their male counterparts, fired weapons less accurately, and were not as good at removing wounded troops from the battlefield. I thought it was really interesting when he said that women wouldn't be able to become Navy SEALs because we just don't have the strength. The Navy SEAL, it's like 100% physical. They have to be able to carry a guy that's 220 pounds maybe across the field if he's been shot. There is a difference in what the attributes are. Interestingly, in today's sensitive political climate, it can sometimes be seen as offensive to point out these types of differences between different groups, but that never really changes the fact that the truths and statistics exist. And even though there are no women in the Navy SEALs, there are plenty of opportunities for women in the military, and many talented women are working in other military roles, which Don tells us about now. So what does a, what is a female really good at in the military? Like, is there special ops that women are extra good at or because they can fit into small spaces or? Yes, there are so many things that women do in the military that they can be so much better at men. And they are in the military and they are sneaking in, acting as couples, going to different countries, being like a couple, um, doing covert work, uh, pretending they're somebody and they're not, but they're a woman with all these skills. But women are women and men are men except for the ones who decide to change for whatever reason. And that's just something they can't help, I know. But what I can't, the, the work a SEAL does, a woman can't do. And I've, I've, I've trained and raced and worked with, I think, some of the toughest women in the world. And I don't know any of them who could do SEAL training. It's just made for a man's body. And then if you do have a woman in the SEAL community, 
the military is all about getting stronger and fitter and faster and more efficient. It's not about pleasing social demands like, hey, how come you don't have an equal amount of women here or an equal amount of blacks or an equal amount of Asians or something? It's about here are the standards. If you meet the standards, come on in. And that's what we're trying to do. Here are the standards. We can't lower these standards. Here are the standards. If you meet them, come on in. We welcome you. Which president that, you know, you served under, did you think understood the military the best? President Reagan and President Bush, they were the best. I've worked with so many Secret Service. I've worked from Secret Service from Carter, Clinton, Barack Obama, Bush, Bush, and Reagan. I've worked with them all. And I have firsthand personal knowledge. Okay, I'll tell you what the Clintons did when they came in. For one, President Bush right now, he is going to more military hospitals, doing more VA bike rides, doing more things for veterans than any president ever has, and he refuses to have it televised. He does it because he loves veterans. Um, President Clinton, when the Clintons came in and the Bushes left the White House, I have firsthand knowledge of this. First of all, the FBI was very, very, very upset that all these people with records of child abuse and child pornography and drugs and, and petty crimes and things, the FBI said, no, they can't come to the White House. And they were called friends of Bill. Bill Clinton had all these favors he was paying back to people. And Hillary vetoed it all. So overnight, the White House changed. Boom. No longer a professional organization. Now, it's all these people without experience because they were paid favors, owed favors by Bill or Hillary Clinton. Step one. Step two was they came in. They got The FBI was very, very upset that Hillary vetoed them all and they allowed them all in. And then Hillary Clinton said, I no longer want the military in the White House. I don't like what they stand for. And the senior generals and admirals say, Mrs. Clinton, uh, we always come here. We have very important meetings here. We meet every week here. We come here. It's part of our protocol. This is what we do. She said, no, I'm sorry. That's all changing. That was in the past. You guys are no longer welcome here. So the, the Clintons come in, and now the military is not welcome in the White House. Finally, she had to concede, and she had to say, okay, the military can come here as long as I never look at them in the eye. They never look at me in the eye if we happen to walk down the same aisles, and they can't be here in uniform. I don't like what they stand for. And then little Chelsea, poor, poor little Chelsea, was walking down with two uniformed Secret Service guys. When she came to the White House, she was a young little girl. And they had the uniforms on, the Secret Service that's in uniform and without uniform. She, these guys were escorting her down to Bill and Hillary down by the limo. These are firsthand accounts from Secret Service. And she started crying. She goes, oh, please. And the Secret Service guys, what's the matter, Chelsea? What's the matter? Says, please don't let my parents see me with you. They hate the military. The Obamas hated the military even more. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes 
organizations and groups that we're passionate about and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. Why would the, the Democrats not like the military? I wish, I really wish I could answer that. I, I, it baffles me. It really baffles me. You know, of the military, what Benghazi, what happened with Benghazi, what Hillary did with Benghazi is something the military will never forgive. I really don't know. I, I, I would answer if I even had a glimmer of an understanding on why they're so against the military. The Obamas were probably even worse. How would they react to the military? And again, I'm trying not to sound too one-sided. I have to give President Obama a great deal of credit because he really put his neck out on the line when he gave SEAL Team 6 the order to um, go get bin Laden without knowing for sure it was bin Laden. That was a gutsy move on the president's part. Of course, Clinton didn't do that. When Clinton, uh, you know what? Bill Clinton said was the worst mistake of his presidency. And this will get you sickened. You won't hear it on the news because I know you don't get it in Canada. And we barely get it here. Bill Clinton said the worst um, part of my presidency, the worst thing I did as president is when I refused to get bin Laden because I knew I had him. I knew we had him on our sites, but I didn't want people to think I was doing it as an excuse to take the attention off of me and Monica Lewinsky. I, I'd heard that that yes. happened. That's from Bill Clinton's lips. They, they uh, don't have high regard for the military or much of what the U.S. stands for in that regard at, at all. I mean, who, who in their right mind can put that in front of getting bin Laden? And that's when we knew bin Laden was funding these big terrorist acts all over the world. He kept funding them because we didn't get them. And who knows how many thousands of people died because Bill Clinton didn't want to be blamed for covering up his Monica Lewinsky affair. Okay, now we move into Trump. Now, how do people mm -hmm. feel about him and his leadership in regards to the military? Well, he gave the military a big raise, and he released the handcuffs that have been on everybody, meaning with Obama administration, everybody was so frustrated because the rules of engagement were so strict they couldn't fight the war. They would chase down a terrorist into a building, had to call home for permission to go into the building, get the terrorist, and the permission would be denied. Air fighters would say, hey, we see all these trucks with all the stolen oil, all the bootlegged oil that's going to be funding you know, the creation of ISIS. And that's how they were getting a million dollars a day, the creation of ISIS. 
And um, they had all this oil, all these oil trucks. And Obama administration says, nope, you can't bomb them. Let them go. They might have civilian drivers. We let ISIS form. President Bush said, whatever you do, don't pull everybody out of Iraq because every general, every admiral, everybody in our Pentagon will agree. If we pull everybody out of Iraq, we'll have a force so powerful, so evil, we'll never be able to defeat them. Well, Obama made a political promise, we'll get everybody out of Iraq, and that's what people who are not in the know would want to hear. They all vote for him, he gets in, he pulls everyone out of Iraq, and ISIS forms up, just like everybody knew it would. And now, some people believe it might take 30 years to defeat ISIS, not to mention how many thousands of people they've killed around the world. And it's because of a political promise made for political purposes only. So what do you think Donald Trump has done that's good versus you don't agree with? Okay, the list of what he's done good is about six pages long that never has made the news, ever. And it never does because the media will not mention anything he's done promising. What they'll mention is how high his heels are that his wife wears and and the stupid tweets he makes and things like that. They'll say everything. They look at the weeds. They expand it. They don't look at the forest. He has, um, our economy has been on the sharpest rise in the history of the United States. We've had, I think, 40 record-breaking days in the stock market, the S&P, the Dow. That's never happened ever. He hasn't got a bit of credit for that. The amount of criminals he's sending back, and he's just following all laws. He's not making new laws. But when an illegal, undocumented worker, whatever you call him, when someone is not a U.S. citizen and they commit a crime, he's sending them back. So many are being sent back now. Um, the economy is a huge, huge boost. Housing market's coming back. The military is now defeating the enemy. They're not being slaughtered like we have been for the last eight years. People have been wanting to get out of the military the last eight years and just quit because they weren't able to do their job. They were sent to these horrible, horrible places, told to go to Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, or Yemen, but then have the best weaponry in the world, know the target, know the threat, but not allowed to, to defeat them. It just wasn't making sense. You could Google a list of Trump's achievements. You'd have to do it that way because the news will never report it. it. It's pretty pathetic. Now, he does a lot of stupid things. Yeah, like what do you disagree with? What are the things that you just go, oh? Things that seem small, but they're significant. I don't like the way he talks to people. I don't like the way he belittles people. I don't like what he said about John McCain. I don't think, I don't like what he said about Megyn Kelly. I think he's very, very petty in a lot of ways. And I don't think he's presidential in a lot of ways. I like mostly his agenda. And he, he, he's fighting for what our country used to stand for before this big left sweep is trying to change it completely. If our liberal, if, if hypothetically, and I know you can't make this happen for real, but if you did take our left side of our country and our right side, and you had the left have all their policies, have their open borders, have all the social programs, they would last about a day because the right stands them up. If the right did everything they wanted to, they would have secure borders, criminals would be behind bars or deported, would have a strong military, would have a strong economy. 
and people would work and people would be graded on not their color, but by their value and by their what they can bring to the workforce. Uh, uh, Democrats like to say, oh, you poor people, you're black. We're going to have to help you out. You poor people, you're Asian. We're going to have to help you out. We're going to have to give you this. We're going to have to give you that. We're going to hold you down because you're going to need us. You want to be held down because then we'll give you extra points for these tests. We'll give you extra credit. Republicans don't think like that. They say, we don't care if the the person's purple, black, yellow, green. It doesn't matter. They fit the bill. They've got the job. And um, in our country, I think, you know, it, it's time that we, we can be there. And, uh, and we're not. And we keep going back and forth. Obama has destroyed our relations. Our police now, we can't get people in the police force anymore because every time there is a shooting and a poor young officer who had very, very little training because the budget's nothing and some kid turns around quickly and he thinks he has a gun and he does or does not do an accidental shooting, Before the facts are laid out, President Obama is blaming the police department. We can't get people in the police department anymore. So they're they're putting their lives online. They're basically getting minimum wage. And now we can't get anybody in our country in the police department because of our last president on how bad he made it. And Islamic relations as well. He really set us back with Islamic relations and racial relations. And President Obama, I mean... He could have changed this world in such a great way. He had the ability, he had the smarts, he had the charisma. He could have really done so much for our race relations, but he set them way backwards. And the Islamic relations in his book, Audacity of Hope. I forget what page it is, but in his words, if I had a side between Christian and Islamic war, I would have to side with the Islamic side. And and that's not a, a terrible thing. I guess if you're a U.S. president, you don't really want your president saying that. But he really sided with the other side. He he turned his back on Israel and gave Iran billions of dollars to continue on with the nuclear weapons program. Nobody can figure out why that happened. And then they lied. They found in the middle of the night these planes, and this may not have even made the news because they don't like to report this stuff. In the middle of the night, it's all on Google. In the middle of the night, they found these planes with cargo pallets loaded with billions of dollars going to Iran to pay off Iran. And then the Obama administration said, what in the world are you doing? They said, oh, we owe this money to them. It's from 25 years ago. It's nothing. We just owe them this money. and We can't do it electronically. Well, then they did a little bit more looking, and they found electronically they sent them more millions of dollars to carry on with their nuclear weapons program. Iran came here, and so did Israel. Israel said, what in the world? We've always been friends with the U.S. U.S. is our ally. We're their ally. Why would the president side with our enemy to help them with the nuclear weapons program? And Iran said, well, yes, some of the money won't go to our nuclear program. But one thing for sure is we'll negotiate a little bit, but we're going to wipe Israel off the face of the planet, and then we're coming after the U.S., and we still gave them, but see, those things we don't know the answers to yet. Those things we don't know. Some people say it was to get the hostages back. It was billions of dollars. So every media and, and journalist, they're very anti-Trump. I mean, it makes it very easy to hate him. He makes it very easy. I mean, he literally yep. does not do himself any good 
And so anything good he does gets lost. The only difference is, I, I agree with you completely. I think he's a jerk in so many ways. The only thing that I try to do is try to look at the forest, not the weeds. And the stupid things he does compared to the big things he's doing, they're little. They're aggravating, they're stupid, they're frustrating, they're ridiculous. I don't know why he does them. I don't like him as a guy at all. I don't like him as a person. I don't like him at all, actually. But I like what he's fighting for, a lot of what he's fighting for. I wish it was someone else doing the fight. Who do you think would have been really good that would have done, you know, all the positives of Trump, but done had a little more class? I would have preferred uh, Romney over probably. Oh, you know who my favorite choice was in probably the last 20 years? Uh, Condoleezza Rice. I love that woman. She grew up in the racial wars and the racial riots. And she's brilliant. She's articulate. She's smart. She's conservative. She doesn't take, uh, she, nobody can uh, out-debate her because she's so prepared. I love Condoleezza Rice. She would have had my vote over anybody since Ronald Reagan, probably over Ronald Reagan, because I didn't know much about him when he came in, but then I learned to like him a lot. But uh, she would have been my favorite. Would she have had the support, do you think? Do you think the Republicans could handle a black female president? I'm sure. You know, like it's funny you ask it that way, but I don't believe Republicans are racist or would be against a black uh, person being president. Well, I just think of the extreme right. You just look at some of the comments that that are made and you think, wow, like what percentage of the population is quite is quite racist? And they say it, it's probably what, 10 to 20 percent of the population is quite racist. I don't I don't know if that's accurate, but if they're the ones voting, it would be challenging. Well, unfortunately, the racism I see is not the racism you're talking about. I see reverse racism here. Uh, I don't see racism in other ways. I do see Confederate flags flying at times from the South who are very, very proud of their heritage. I don't know if they're making a statement against blacks or not, because I don't know who it is who's flying them. But when I see racism here, it's blacks against whites, not the other way around. Um, uh, Whites have been programmed not to say anything negative or anything. Blacks are welcome to, and they put in the literature and music, and they can speak about it. It's okay. I only see it in reverse. Don't you think that's almost payback? I mean, that happens in in Canada with our First Nations. And I feel like we did so much wrong that I feel that they have the right to say whatever they want about the, the white person. And I feel that's similar in the States, right? Wouldn't it be kind of because the blacks were treated so badly? Well, actually, my heart's out for the American Indian who we've stolen their land and slaughtered. And I think we ruined their DNA and we put them on little reservations and the people are destroyed. It's kind of like your First Nations. I think we did a terrible, terrible injustice then. And they don't even have a voice. But with, with the slavery issue, I see it a little differently. Blacks sold blacks to the world. U.S. bottom. Back then, that was the way it was. The U.S. ended slavery. We ended slavery. And slavery now around the world is worse now than ever before. I mean, it's, it's actually at an all-time high right now is 
the human trafficking, slavery um, than it's ever been. It's the worst it is. I mean, that's an area that I focus quite a bit on in um, my podcast and in some of my advocacy. It, it's it's really unbelievable how it does not. I mean, it's 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 quadrupled more than that. Yep. And so so of course now you know, hundreds of years later, you look back. Oh yes, we were terrible. Jefferson was terrible for owning slaves, but back then it wasn't terrible. Um, where I live on the eastern shore in Virginia, in Cape Charles, Virginia, I have a friend there who's had family there for 400 years. He could trace his ancestry back to the 1600s, and they had slaves. And his stories are very, very interesting. He'll say, oh, yeah, we all had slaves. Actually, when slavery ended, they all stayed here. They didn't want to leave because they became like our family. Um, so, so I think it's a card that we're overpaying back. I mean, how much more does it go? I mean, does it go on forever? Is it easier for us to say that because we're so used to white privilege? Like, I mean, the only prejudice I've had against me is being a female. And I don't, I haven't even really felt that, to, to be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm almost 48. I don't have memories of being mistreated ever for being a female. So I don't even know what it's, what it would be like. So I don't even know if I can even comment because I, I just have had such a privileged life. I mean, the thing is, you have seen the worst of society. You really have. I mean, you have been in places where it's the worst of the worst. I don't think it has anything to do with skin color at all. I would say I'm absolutely not a bit of racist in me at all. And I'm conservative. And most people will say, oh, you're conservative. You must be a racist. All that matters to me is you want this job? be qualified for I think what I'm picking up from your personality is you are hard on anyone that can't deliver regardless of who, what their nationality is. <laughs> you have such a high standard for yourself that I honestly don't think that you would see color when you're doing training. But I, but there probably is quite a few people that do. Or would you say have you ever met a Navy SEAL that says it's been harder for them being Asian or black or? Never, never. There aren't many blacks and there aren't many Asians in the SEAL teams either. But when they're there, you don't even think of their color or their race. You're just another SEAL. Why would there not be many? Okay, well, this, this will sound racist, actually. The swimming uh, rules out a lot of people who take the initial swim test who are black uh, don't make it. But then the skills we had for blacks were exceptional. Another thought-provoking, sensitive subject that caught our attention. While this could be brushed off as stereotyping or racist, we were genuinely curious. Don himself had seen firsthand that swimming was a barrier for African Americans wanting to become SEALs. We did some research and found lots of talk on the subject. While there is a fairly common stereotype that black people can't swim, that does seem to have some roots in truth. A study by USA Swimming found some concerning statistics. Nearly 70% of African-American children had little or no ability to swim. The fatal drowning rate of black children aged 5 to 14 was three times that of white children. But why? Well, it's difficult to pinpoint any one reason with certainty, but a 2010 BBC article discussed some theories which included propagation of false information, such as black people being less buoyant, historic factors going back as far as slaves not being allowed to learn to swim, 
denial of access to pools in the 1920s and 30s, which caused a ripple effect. Black parents who may not be able to swim fear that their children could drown while learning to swim, when in fact it could save their life. And the cycle continues. And finally, perception of swimming as an elitist or white sport. We'll include the link to this article in the show notes if you'd like to read more. Coming up, Don talks about the sacrifice of putting your life on the line for your country, retirement, the cost of war, and his experience working with Canadians. When we return on Stand Up Speak Up. The key to change is action. That's why at Stand Up Speak Up Fashion, our mission is to raise awareness on issues that affect teens and young people today. Each unique design highlights social justice and human rights topics, from homelessness and drug abuse to mental health and bullying. Show the world what you stand for with Stand Up Speak Up Fashion. A portion of every sale goes to support 3,000 acts of kindness. Read more and browse our collections at StandUpSpeakUpFashion.com. You do all this to protect your country, but it never turns into to big cash to be a Navy SEAL, right? I mean, it's just like a, a, a salary every year, and then how, you have a great pension. Like, how does that work? Well, if you compare it to like the FBI or the CIA or the State Department or federal marshals or any federal job, if you compare your your retirement pay with them, you think, my God, what in the world? I'm only getting a third what those people get. And so the retirement's not that great either. So uh, basically the retirement is, it's enough to live on if you live in a little, little, little tiny home somewhere and it's paid for perhaps but then again you do 20 years in and you live 40 years after that you're going to have 40 years of retirement pay when you compare it to other federal jobs it's a fraction of what they get um and nobody's ever been there for the money because you're right you don't make much money as a seal and nobody's there for the money nobody really they, they want to get promoted and make more money but what about if you get hurt on the job how well are you taken care of I mean, if you have um, anything from mental health from a job to physical health, like how is it all compensated? Well, military medicine is pretty good in spite of, you know, what you might hear, despite of what you might hear with the VA program. The VA program is so taxed right now for having a war going on for 16 years. But um, it's, uh, you, you're taken care of, you know, like for me, I've been retired almost 20 years now. And I can get dental and dermatology and physicals free, you know, with a little copay. And now with the way of, you know, our healthcare system is, it, it means a lot now. Do you all retire at 40? And then how do you set yourself up so you can enjoy, enjoy your life to kind of have more luxuries or, or have more financial security? You have to do something after retirement. Now, an officer enlisted, if you're an officer and you end up being like a captain or an admiral and you've done 30 years, you're going to have a lot better retirement than, say, an enlisted person who does 20 years. So, But an enlisted person who does 20 years, they're still young enough to get out and do something, use their skills and apply it somewhere else. And that with the retirement, military retirement, they, they do okay. And why did you retire? Would, were you, what, what inspired you to say enough? 
Well, for me, I retired in 98, and it was before the two wars started, and I was getting bored, and I was thinking, you know, I'm still young, I'm still fit, I can do a lot of other things. I think I just want to go do something else. So I went to work for the U.S. government with things I couldn't say on the phone here, but I went to work for the U.S. government and ended up being in all the war zones doing government-related work with the terrorists and all. And, um, and then you're making quite a bit more money, actually. But the reason I got the jobs is because I was a SEAL. So it kind of worked out pretty nicely. Is it mandated that you support your president? Would you be in trouble if you ever criticized your president? No, the proper thing to do is not to be political at all in the military. And the proper thing is to do what you're told to do and not question and not get involved in the political um, equation. Now, there are people who can't help themselves. And actually, I remember we had a, a very senior senior enlisted at SEAL Team 6, and he actually voted for Clinton. And people talked about it from all the SEAL teams. Do you know there's a guy who voted for Clinton? What in the world was that about? So people have the right to do whatever they want, but it's usually conservative. Uh, you're there to defend your country, and you're all about defending the flag and the country, and that's what the military is about, and not destroying it. And uh, so every now and then, if somebody has a difference in opinion, it's it's just thought of as odd. Would it be hard for you to go against? I mean, you know, you hear a lot of situations in movies where, you know, I know that movies totally fake, but that they go against government um, direction or requests. Does that ever really happen? Like, are you ever on a mission where you actually don't listen to your direct order? No, no. The only time people will go off on a mission and they do something slightly different, and a SEAL is a little different than regular ground troops or regular infantry or regular military because they're trained to think on their own. So, for instance, the old adage, hey, the Marine, go take that hill. Um, they will do that, even if there's a machine gunner's nest up there and he's shooting everybody on the hill. A SEAL, if he's going up the hill, this is a pretty bad analogy or example, I guess. If he sees that machine gunner's nest, he might not go up there. He might back off and maybe go around the backside because he's thinking on his own. And They're trained to think on their own and not have to have direct orders from someone who's not right there on the ground with them. And it makes a big difference. Right now, the reason we were losing the wars so badly during the Obama administration is because they were directing the war from the White House. And there were non-war fighting people, non-military people in the White House running the war from the White House 4,000 miles away. And it just we were losing badly because of that. So now, at least what, what's going on, one of the things that President Trump is doing that the military is very excited about is he's letting actual warfighters, Pentagon generals and admirals, the people who have done this all their lives, make the decisions, make the big decisions. And, and that's, that's what they're there for. And that's the expertise they have. And for instance, General Mattis, who's running our Pentagon now, he's the biggest anti-war general we probably have in the military. And he's a tough, tough guy. And they asked him on the news the other day, General Mattis, what keeps you awake at night? He said, nothing keeps me awake. I keep the enemy awake. He's a tough, tough guy, but he knows how bad war is and how many lives are lost in war and how devastating it is. And he's a scholar, and all he, he wants is anything but war. 
But he also understands if we have an enemy and they're attacking, we can't lay down and be killed. We have to fight back, and he knows how to fight back. And that's a a scholar, general, warrior we have running our Pentagon now, which is a lot better than non-war fighting people in the White House who are against the military fighting our wars. What do you think of of this all the spending that happens on war? Would you say that it's mostly justified, or do you think it's kind of out of control? Like, how do you feel about all the military costs to go to war? It's so expensive. I can't believe how expensive it is. For instance, during the Obama administration, I think they spent eighty-one billion. 81 billion to replace our Humvees to have what's called MRAP. It's a bigger military vehicle to fight the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's just to carry ground troops around on the ground. 81 billion. And then what the terrorists did, they just made bigger bombs that defeat those. So we spent 81 billion and then all they have to do, instead of a 10-pound charge, they put a 15-pound charge and defeat our MRAPs. So it's so expensive. We did stupid things, like also during the Obama administration. They bought brand-new dump trucks for every region in Afghanistan in one province. Brand-new dump trucks. It cost billions of dollars. And we're wondering, why would we... They don't even throw their trash in trash cans. They throw it on the streets. We don't have brand new dump trucks in this country. So we do stupid things like that. And there's not enough oversight. And there's not enough oversight in our government, I don't believe. And equally, on the Democrat side, there's not enough oversight on their spending either. And we just we ridiculously spend. Um, there's not enough oversight on either side, including the, Demo- the, the um, conservative side for war fighting. You know, I had a I had a friend who was in CSIS. Did you ever work with Canadians? Sure, yeah. And one thing he said to me that really stuck with me was he said, the first thing you do when you land in a country is you find the Americans. Because the Americans <laughs> know how badly equipped we Canadians are, and they feel sorry for us. And mm. they help outfit us. And when they leave, and if they go to a new posting – they will leave stuff behind for us because we get sent in um, with like secondhand gear. Would you say that's that's sure. pretty accurate? Uh, yes, it is. That is accurate. Once you're over there, money's not the concern. And Canadians are friends. Um, we have brothers in arms. And the way we feel is that we're on their side, they're on our side. Anything that's ours is theirs as well. It's just the way it is, and that's how, how you feel about the people you work with. How would you describe the personalities of the Canadians versus the American soldiers when you interact? Well, the U.S. is more, and I, I'm very, very close with the Canadian. The girl I'm dating is from Canada. I think there's the, the sense of patriotism is, is a more instilled quality, I believe, in America. You see more American flags and things like that. But with the Canadians the, the Canadians that I know, all the Canadians I know, they say, hey, they'll ask questions about the liberal things that come on TV. And you talk about it. And then they, they understand the other side that they haven't heard yet. And they wonder why they're not hearing it. 
Um, I love the way Canadians think, and I'm not trying to stereotype, but I love the way they think because they're very open-minded, but they're not tied up into politics like we are. And they're not all wrapped up in, in the country or in politics like we are. And I think that's a lot healthier, to tell you the truth. And um, as far as uh, the Canadian warfighters, they're just top-notch, just like everybody else over there. No better or no worse, you know, just good. And I know some Canadian police officers. I know some people in the Canadian security force, and they're just as professional as you would see anywhere. And and uh, they're very, very um, reputable. People, people uh, when they talk about the Canadians, it's all... Basically, I've never heard anything anything negative about anybody in Canada ever. You hear about the U.S. all the time, but not Canada. I've never heard anything anything negative about any Canadian ever, actually ever. <laughs> so that's the truth. And um, so it's the same over there. The Canadians, they're, they're our friends, and we think the world of them. And they, they you know, they, they're there for the same reason we're there. And that's our talk with former SEAL Team 6 member Don Mann. For show notes, visit StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com. And don't go anywhere for your bonus content today. Don speaks with Carla about his girlfriend from Canada and how his tough mindset plays into relationships. Every cowboy he always misses When he's aiming at the target in his head his idle hands grasping at tomorrow's promised land and I've been thinking That was Every Cowboy from Cellophane Sam. Now, here's more from Carla's chat with Don Mann. Okay, so let's talk about your Canadian girlfriend. What kind of girl? Is she um, a triathlete? She must be a triathlete. No, she's not at all. She's not. Um, she's a dancer, of, you know, a classical dancer. But she worked for the Vancouver Canucks. And I met her because I did a talk for the Vancouver Canucks. And she was the general manager's assistant of the Vancouver Canucks. Does she have that mental toughness that you have? No, <laughs> no. Actually, she's an incredible, beautiful woman in every way. Does she ever get a headache? Does she yes. ever? <laughs> yeah. And so after all these years now, what do you say when she says, oh, I have a headache? 
Well, we've only been together for a couple of years, but um, she knows I could probably care a little bit more if I tried. <laughs> okay, so and when you go visit her, do you just like exercise six hours a day? Uh, yeah, hopefully a couple hours a day. And when you had your health she does, scare, she exercised you. When she when you had your health scare, did she see a really vulnerable side to you? Yep, and actually what she did, she flew from Vancouver out to Philly to pick me up at the airport. She was so scared. She brought, it's not, We like to feel needed. We like to feel that, <laughs> you know, we like to see our guys have a, some, some sensitivity and weakness. We, we need to feel we have the upper hand sometimes. <laughs> I know. For you, you might have to fake a lot of that and pretend you have mental weakness. <laughs> yeah, well... I guess I, I, I'm sure I do. Do you get to share? Did you, do you get to share any of your your work you get to do with her, or is that all kept totally top secret? No, the, the unclassified stuff we share. So, how much of your stuff is unclassified versus classified? Probably seventy five percent of it. Just just a small portion of this classified now. And do you feel um, as inspired with your work now as you did 30 years ago? It just, like, do you still love what you yes, do? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I believe in it. Yep, I sure do. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stand Up Speak Up. For show notes and more, visit StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com. We'll see you next time. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.